Well, hello, 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 and welcome back to the first episode of the Free the Geek podcast for 2023. Now, I would usually think this would be a summer break, and for me it would normally, I shouldn't say normally, I've been living in Europe for 15 years. I still kind of think it would be a summer break, because in Australia it is summer. But here in Europe it's winter, so it's the first episode back after the winter break. And in this episode, Arne Blankets shared so, so much awesome good stuff with me about containers and all that good stuff. Now, to stop using superlatives and actually get into specifics, let's see, looking at my notes, we talked about Podman, kernel APIs, C groups, VM images, chroot, freebsd jails, docker, docker compose, the amount of firewall rules that docker and docker compose can set up as part of docker networking, some of the DNS issues, some of the security issues partly based or mainly based around the docker model, why that may or may not be a good thing, contrasting docker with podman, which he is a huge fan of, by the way. There's just so much in there. I mean, he... I, I can really only say that he just... he the, the man delivers, he is so, so generous. And I know that you're going to see that coming through in this episode. So, without further ado... Oh, actually, one little bit of further ado. I hope you've been well. I hope the break hasn't been too long since the last episode for 2022. But before I dive right on in, as always, you will find links to every single thing that we talk about, as many as we could grab in the show notes for this episode. Thank you very much for being patient. And here is a wonderful fireside chat that if you are into containers, you will get so much value out of. Cue the intro music. If you want to learn the essentials of developing and deploying applications with Docker Compose, especially if you've been struggling to figure out what you need to know while Googling, searching Stack Overflow, and various other forums, then you'll love Deploy with Docker Compose. It's a free book and course that teaches you the essentials of building images and deployment configurations, tagging images, and pushing them to remote container registries, how to debug applications running inside containers, how to debug containers when they don't work as expected, and how to deploy your application to a production environment or any other environment using Docker Compose. Now, it doesn't cover every possible Docker command, nor does it go absolutely super duper deep in depth about anything that you could know. It just covers the essentials that you need to know so that you can deploy your first application with confidence. And you also get a host of supporting information, tips, tricks, and pointers to help you out when you get stuck. Check it out today at deploywithdockercompose.com.
first of all, thanks for having me iterate about this again, because I'm, well, probably consider myself a bit of a um, Potman fanboy in, in that regard. Um, but yeah, let's start with a little bit of a of a backstory, because to me, um, it always was funny or weird in a way that um, Docker turned out to be so popular because I never understood what's so special about what Docker is doing, because it basically is, that sounds probably a bit more negative than I mean it, um, a fancy wrapper around the kernel API, because actually, yes, Docker did good marketing and made it popular, but technically it's not really doing much. It came up with a, well, the DSL to describe how the stuff should be set up. But other than that, it's wrapping around kernel APIs. And I've been using like that API with other systems like LXC, like Linux containers, which is one of the older variants to, to run things um, for years before um, yeah, Docker became really popular or usable in that regard. Um, to me though, being also more or less at home at the um, Red Hat world in terms of Linux, Docker always was like, okay, this doesn't really fit to the Linux style of doing things. Like, okay, it's an external thing that you had to install in the beginning. It's something that um, runs a separate service, which is a yeah central God kind of component in your environment to manage all those things. But I already have an init system. I have a Linux kernel. Why do I need this other thing there? It never made sense to me. Mm -hmm. And when I started to play with that, I installed it and like, okay, starting it is comparatively easy. And then I was like opening a terminal, okay, Docker run, whatever a test container. Like, no, 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 you can't do this. You have to be root to do that. Like, mm -hmm. wait, what? This is a container. The very concept of it is isolating things from the operating system. Mm -hmm. Why do I have to be root to do that? Yeah, fair Okay, point. then... Yeah. Googling that and like, yeah, it's easy. You just add like whatever kind of group settings here and change the permissions of the socket so everybody can do this. Uh, you realized when you do that, basically everybody can run everything as root. That's kind of worse. Mm -hmm. So this never made sense to me. Okay. But the idea of containers makes a lot of sense. Having a process isolated makes a lot of sense. And when I'm giving presentations about all this containering things or do trainings where this is playing a role, then I'm always trying to tell people that um, containers originally based on what the C groups API, which is all the stuff in the Linux kernel where this stuff is based on, um, tries to do is isolating an individual process. And what you see in these images is a full operating system. So like if you, take Alpine, if you take um, yeah, Ubuntu, whatever, Debian, all the base images that they provide, mm -hmm. they started off as basically a virtual machine image, just started in a different fashion. Okay. And the only thing missing in those images is the kernel, because obviously you don't need that because that's the shared component. But to me, that always made it really weird because I want to run an individual process. And we had that conceptually in Unix systems for ages called chroot. Yeah. So the only thing I would need was like, okay, I need something that generates the environment so that in a chroot 
kind of directory structure, I have everything that I need to run the process isolated from everything else mm. and now have the enhanced, maybe the Edgewood on steroids kind of wrapper around that, that isolates networking and more hardware access so that I can restrict the behavior better than CH root could do logically. Okay. If you go to other operating systems like FreeBSD, where you have jails, this also exists. There's nothing new in there per se. Yeah. The okay. only thing that's really practical is having a mechanism to share an image, create, like this is my application, this is everything that's included. Gotcha. And, and then get that easily installed and have it distributed. But if you see all the quirks and all the things that um, Docker is doing from a practical perspective, particularly with Docker Compose and all these things, if you Google for networking issues or DNS issues with Docker, it's like one of the most amount of hits that you can possibly imagine. Mm -hmm. Because apparently it's a really common problem that name resolution doesn't work or the system doesn't find certain hosts when the order of compose is not correct and all kinds of things happening. You have to delay things. And it's it's really weird how complex that is. If you start like a compose thing that's comparatively complex of having various containers interconnected. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the routing table and the firewall rules to map all that, that the kernel is set up with based on the Docker daemon, it's insane how many rules get added. Okay. Which makes sense. I mean, it still works, but it's still like, somehow it feels like we are, we lost track, right? The original mm -hmm. idea was to isolate a process and we are blowing this kind of out of proportion. Yeah, okay. I, I take your point. And yeah, then if you look at what Potman is doing, it's there's no daemon because it logically doesn't need it. Mm -hmm. You can run things because the C API, um, the, like C groups API of the Linux kernel supports that, run it as a normal user. So you can run a container without having root access. Of course, you can't listen to root ports in that kind of context, but that's not necessarily a problem. If you mm. want to actually publish a web server running in a container, then of course you need to start that container as root because that's a root port. That's a logical thing that you would have to do on a normal operating system kind of <laughs> environment as well. But to me, the very concept of Podman and having everything integrated into the operating system as in not fighting it kind of made yeah. a lot of sense to me. Well, like sort of use what you already have and just build upon that as opposed to sort of reinvent or Overlay, overlay, yes. multiple times. And okay. with that causing issues, right? Um, if you see, I mean, there's nice video presentation from Dan Walsh, which is one of the guys um, doing the Podman stuff. He even wrote a book um, on, on Podman because I think, yeah, he's working for Red Hat for quite a while um, and is like Mr. Podman to most people. Mm -hmm. But he's really good at educating people and showing the differences and one of the core things is a logical thing. If you see, like, if you have the Docker daemon and all the Docker command line tool that you use, like Docker run or pull and whatever, mm -hmm. is only basically directing the requests to the Docker daemon. It's not doing it itself. Yeah. And that means that the Docker daemon is owning the process. So if you spawn a container, it's a sub-process of the Docker daemon which means that the operating system has no means of directly controlling it per se. Like if you 
have no daemon, then it's on the core system that is running the system okay. is owning that particular process. Yeah. So you have one level of indirection less. And of course, what happens if the Docker daemon crashes? Fair point. So there's a lot of conceptual architectural things that I consider, well, not necessarily optimal for um, for using Docker. Granted, the Docker brand and all that stuff made it really popular. So they did an awesome job of making it popular, but the architectural decision is weird. And I don't even understand why they went that way because it means a lot more work. I mean, having a constant process that has to run with root privileges to do things, why? I mean, the first thing you do or learn if you want to write a, Unix system daemon is okay. Let's get rid of root as soon as possible. Yeah. If you have a process that has to listen to a root pod, yeah, spawn off from there and have that process run as a different user because you don't want to be root anywhere if you can avoid it. Very true. Yeah, I remember and that is one Docker of my just, earliest lessons. Yeah, and Docker just tries to violate that wherever it can to me, at least the way I understand how it's working, which might be a bit flawed because again, I'm kind of a Podman fan, but um, yeah. Curious on the, on, on the point of Podman, like I quite like, um, without getting into the weeds of it, like the like a docket composed from the aspect of, I want one of these, one of these, one of these, these, here's how I'll configure it. Like just the, from a, a user or admin perspective, the ability to sort of create a configuration and configure it reasonably easily in a YAML file. Um, and I started looking at Podman and it talked about like Podman Compose or something or like a name that would mm -hmm. be something analogous. I think if I remember correctly, they said they didn't, there wasn't something quite the same yet. Is there an equivalent or do you need like another tool to do have Podman work in a conceptually similar way? Well, the, the fun thing is that um, the Podman developers try really, really, really hard to ensure that um, the API of Podman itself, as mm -hmm. in the command line API, is identical to what Docker would be doing. So pretty much okay. every parameter that from a Podman perspective makes sense, at least, um, that Docker does is mapped. So you have the one-to-one -one thing. So this, the thing is that um, if you see one of the presentations from um, Dan Walsh on how, how to replace um, Docker, with Podman is, um, okay, throw Docker away, install Podman and set an alias Docker mm -hmm. equals Podman. And there you go. Then you have the full, um, yeah, one-to-one -one thing. Just okay. you don't need the daemon anymore. Yeah. And um, there's a project, um, Podman Compose, that um, is under active development. And of course, it doesn't support all the things that um, Docker can do. Mm -hmm. Um, the majority of things work. I don't really run into issues anymore. In the beginning, it was really like, okay, we don't support this type of networking or this kind of configuration or whatever. Um, but the majority of things get mapped pretty pretty well. Okay. What one has to a little bit to understand is that um, what Docker Compose is doing conceptually, as in what you write down in the hmm. um, in the Compose file, makes a lot of sense. By just basically, it's a dependency management, right? I need these containers; and they have to be mapped together so you can actually access these things. But um, in the Podman world, you don't really have that in that a complex way. Um, Podman, as the name already suggests, a little bit um, basically. It's 
thinks everything is a pod. A pod is a, like if you do stuff with Kubernetes, um, that's a group of services run in the same kind of network space. So that means that if you create a pod and just join containers into that, they can see each other as if they were running on a local host. So if you have like, for example, PHP, FPM running and um, Nginx and MySQL in, in a pod, then you can have um, Nginx forward to localhost, um, double colon 9000 for mm -hmm. fastGI requests. And it, PHP could connect to MySQL using localhost 3306. Yeah. Because that's all in the same network space. No complex routing, no net, no service discovery, whatever. It's just like, hey, this is us being isolated here. And you decide what you want to expose from that local thing to the outside world. Okay. I'll do some more so, reading on it. And Podman Compose obviously uses that um, to translate what the Compose file would um, try to establish here and yeah. map that into something that makes sense. But you can also store that setup once it's being created in a Kubernetes YAML file and then just play that with Podman, which is actually really practical because you can just play that in the actual Kubernetes as well if you feel like. I've been gradually getting into Kubernetes like piece at, a piece at a time. <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit more complex. It definitely comes across that way. I saw some projects like like Simple Cube or something like that. Yeah, sort Mini of, Cube, I think, is the that most... sounds like it. Yeah, sort of was it like simplify and sort of start in easily and then gradually build up a piece at a time. I don't know. I don't know if this is sort of controversial or, or not deliberately seeking to be or not, but maybe Docker is sort of akin to Laravel in a way. Um, just to clarify that before someone shoots me. I only mean that in that before Laravel came along, there were plenty of frameworks which did a lot of good things, but I hats off to them, like Laravel has some fantastic marketing. Now this is not yes. to negatively critique or anything else, just that. No, it's very good thing. at selling things. It's also really good at making things accessible. Like, mm. you know, it's really like, okay, you can get things going really fast. And there's good documentation on showing how to do it the Laravel way. Whether or not this is a good programming style is a completely different story. Whether that environment and the amount of hardware you need to do certain things also depends on what you want to be doing. We have a um, client that decided to um, create a project before they actually became our clients um, based on Laravel. and. Um, by the time they had a working prototype, they benchmarked it and realized they would need like, I don't know, like 20 or 30 more servers to actually run the application in production because there's based on probably the way they wrote it and how much caching has to be everywhere. And yeah, it makes sense if you wanna get stuff out there fast. I'm not necessarily convinced that the amount of software being run um, actually helps to get things going well in the long run, at least. But that totally depends on what you're doing, right? If you're a web agency that creates something for like that's online half a year for like whatever campaign, yeah, making maintainable software that is running in 10 years is of no use. It's just a waste of effort. But if you are, for example, an insurance company, just to come up with a random example and create um, business logic creating that into a framework that is particularly web-based, um, 
doesn't necessarily make sense to me. I mean, you can use any framework. Of course, Laravel is perfectly fine to make the translation from whatever business piece into the web. But I would not consider writing the business logic in like Laravel controllers and having like their ORM map everything into a CRUD database. Because that usually is not how things would be working if you have a rather business, a rather complex business process. But getting started and seeing how it could look like and making it web aware, perfectly fine with me. No issues. Okay. Interesting. It was like an unintentional segue. Yes. <laughs> I guess sort of segueing back to containers and stuff. So thinking of something here on the fly. What this... might be interesting yep. as a side note, I'm still in the background trying to find it again because somehow my bookmark vanished. Um, there's a nice um, template set, um, if you will, that you can install on, on Linux. Um, if you have Podman and Systemd um, as, a, as a combo, where you can define a systemd service based on containers, right? So I don't know if anybody um, actually ever looked into how systemd works internally or how you could create your own services. I'm aware that probably as um, controversial as Docker versus Podman is like whether or not systemd is a good thing for Linux. <laughs> um, from a user's perspective, I'm really happy with it. I can totally see um, the criticism and understand it. But um, to me, as the user of an operating system, and to me, Linux is the operating system I chose to use, what systemd offers me makes a lot of sense, and I like it. The way things are started, how I can control things, how readable things are to me, where I find things that all make sense to me. Yeah. Maybe I'm biased. Maybe that's just because I've been using it for a while. Mm -hmm. um, but to me, it makes a lot of sense. And one of the things um, that I've been doing for quite a while is telling people um, if they want to do event-based kind of software, they need to have a background process that is running and doing these kind of things. And of course you can reinvent everything yourself to make sure that this process is running and it's not having like race conditions and whatnot, or you can just start it as a systemd service and systemd will take care of you for that. If that process crashes, it's gonna start it again. If it's gonna, um, well, has to wait for certain things, it doesn't communicate back, whatnot. You can basically do a lot of things and have systemd take care of stuff. Mm -hmm. And um, of course, many people were like, yeah, but what if I have that in a container? Mm -hmm. Right? I mean, of course, you can still use like Docker and have a process that then starts that there, but um, systemd is a Linux core component these days to mm. most people at least. Yeah. And Podman plays nightly, nightly, yeah. <laughs> nicely <laughs> um, with that. Um, you have command line options for Podman to generate the systemd service file. So even if you create a pod, you can say, okay, generate the systemd service files for that. And it will have the interdependency to start the individual containers. And then you can basically start the matter service that basically starts the pod and then fires off the containers. So that's, to me, really nice. It's okay. auto-generated, of course, so can, you can tweak it if you want. Mm -hmm. um, and what I really like, there's an extension. That's why I started talking about it. Um, and I have to try to find it, look it up, and um, what the UL was, because as I said, my bookmark somehow vanished. At least I can't find it anymore. Um, where you basically have a line saying, okay, I want to have a service run by starting this particular container. 
and so the configuration is not like okay i need blah things it's just like really nice um system d configuration this container map this volume here map this volume there run as this particular user restart me if it crashes and whatnot and that will basically map that into the appropriate podman call to start this and i think nice. this is really really nice i i like that from as as you said a um um, what, what would be the right word? You're, you're using the existing tools and not attempting to recreate anything. Um, I, I could at least sitting here perceive that someone might perceive something like 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 an all-in-one approach that something like Docker presents if you just do it all from one spot. But I like the idea of like reusing existing tools and not attempting to sort of recreate again. It's like, well, this has existed for there. I don't remember how many years system DC been around for, but building on something that's already there um that to me makes a lot of what you say just just practical sense so yeah. yeah if you could share those that'd be cool yeah i'm trying to find it i maybe i have it in a presentation somewhere let me quickly check um yeah to me as i said um if i have an operating system working with what the operating system already has and extend on that maybe replace small components yes but not try to fight the whole concept of an operating system. And there's various um, tools that try to do that, where I always wonder like, okay, you realize how much additional work you produce for yourself to make that stable and make it secure. If you go back to the beginnings, just because of this root service, they had so many security exploits against them because yeah, it's a running process. It's root. It allows a lot of stuff by definition, by design. Yeah. Gotcha. I remember from many years ago, I don't have a concrete example now, but maybe it's like a, it was a youth thing. Like everybody in their youth says, well, I can do this. So I will. Um, and there are a lot of times of building certain tools across various projects. And I think the more familiar I became with with Linux over the course of time. It was well, you know, there's the service over there. You could just use that. Like, why recreate something when someone else is, or a number, any number of people are already building it, maintaining it, fixing bugs, doing documentation, and you could just link into that. Why create it? And in some places I worked, that idea seemed to be well received. Others, not so much. It was more, no, no, we have to do it ourselves because then we know it's just well if you've got the budget and the time fair enough but yeah it always it made most sense to me to say well if something's already there it's already being maintained why not just use it yeah totally there's literally nothing to add to that i mean of course you have to see how big it is and how much you get right i mean mm. saying to make a really stupid example if you have a um a website that allows you to register for an event and you expect like maybe 200 people to come there so yeah you can create like a kubernetes cluster to deal with all that and use really complex frameworks to deal with this or you can use a google form right so you have to choose how much technology to throw at a problem and i really like that um there's it's a really old meme picture of like a big fat ass truck with like a empty back and there's like a mini 
like this kit car where you can as like a two or three year old kind of like roll on being stripped like to the back of the major fat ass truck and the meme says like deploying your um, hardly read never updated blog using kubernetes <laughs> yeah and literally it's like we throw so much technology at problems that are like really do mm. we really need that yeah but a lot of it, there, there seems to come around so often like especially working at a tech company um it's this this i don't i don't think it's tech specific but it's you kind of see everything as well i do tech there is a problem therefore i must apply a technology solution when it's yeah. all do, do you one do you really two as you said like could i just open up a spreadsheet and you know just trying to pick like some random thing saying i i need to have like a budget well we need to write an app for that this is a spreadsheet you can just put some formula in it and yep. maybe that's all you ever need to do and it i don't know if it's it's tech it's ego it's pride or, or what exactly it is because i'm neither a psychologist nor a sociologist but there's a lot of we'll build this it's like well i i can okay. just install the app i'm of course not a psychologist either but i i would assume based on um well personal experience like back when um my wife was still nerding our daughter her wrists hurt a lot and we went to like um her regular like a uh, doctor and um he said like yeah that's because of the breastfeeding that changes whatever and that has effects on like how like the muscles and like the i don't know the english term like whatever is keeping this actually straight without the muscles and um, the strings kind of and the, yeah and the channels for that mm -hmm. and they get more tight for whatever reason yeah. and if you are having comparatively tight ones to begin with that will eventually hurt because it's mm -hmm. like like rsi kind of thing mm -hmm. and like no that can't be i mean we didn't really believe that but um we went to a different doctor who's like in like checking all these kind of things and does operations like yeah well, we can operate that like hold on a second right <laughs> i mean i was just asking why that is mm. and like yeah if that ever happens it's not gonna go away again you have oh. to do a treatment for it and literally the day she stopped because our daughter decided she's done um it went away so the original doctor was perfectly right it's related to that and the reason why i'm telling this story is not to just give a random medical advice here but mm. um which i'm definitely not um but if you ask a professional in their field and confront them with a problem, they're going to try it to solve the methods that the field they are professionals in gives them as tools. So if you're asking somebody to operate, yeah, well, then you're going to do that type of thing, right? I mean, mm -hmm. that's how they know how to fix the problem. So if you ask a developer, um, I need a solution, yeah, I can write the software for it. That makes perfect sense. Maybe you yeah, shouldn't true, have asked true. the developer to begin with because you would have to understand <laughs> the problem first. Yeah, that's a fair point. Or there's there's that other one of it perhaps becomes even more filtered. It's um I, I tell the story occasionally, like I was sitting at, at university and I had a lovely lecturer who was a wonderful gentleman. And it's, I, it's it's so many years ago I don't remember exactly how the conversation started, but we I think he sort of posed, like, how how would you solve this problem? 
I, I think that was how he f- approached it. And then there became like a chorus of answers. And it was all like in, in that particular person's self-included favorite language or tool of choice or tools of choice. And I was like, and he, he let us run for a while. And after a while I said, what exact problem are you solving? He said, oh, well, where?" he said, no, no, no. What you're telling me is what you, okay, I'm going to use what my you know tool of choice is and i'm going to wrap the problem into i'm going to kind of wrap my tools somehow or other as the solution to this problem he said no 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 no, just problem first and maybe you don't even need a tech solution i just posed to you here is a problem what would you do he said and he said i just found it interesting that he i think it was something like people don't change that much you still do the same thing he said every year i roughly do the same thing and i roughly get the same response occasionally it's a much more closely aligned solution to the problem as opposed to tech first or as you said your uh specialty first yep. and then how can i warp that as or, or fit the problem to my solution yeah the, the biggest problem in particular with with tech solutions is that most of the times you don't even get to see the actual problem as the person trying to deal with something because you get a request right can you write me a piece of software does that does x yes i'm a developer of course i can do that but you didn't tell me why you need x you just told me to do x so and we always tell our clients when we see this kind of situation um like you know you're all too nice and they were like why too nice because you're trying to not produce work for somebody else that you think you can already do. So if I want something from you that you do something for me, it would be considered nice if I take all the unnecessary work that I could potentially do away and only bother you with the things you're the only one capable of doing. Because despite the relationship in the office probably is exactly that way that you're supposed to work together like this, it still feels odd to ask somebody constantly for doing something. So you're trying to take some of the work away by doing it yourself, thinking of a problem and coming up with a solution and then coming up with the idea of a solution to you. Yeah. The problem is that literally you didn't tell me the problem. You told me your solution. But to come up with an actual proper solution, I have to understand your problem. Mm. And that's why so many software projects fail because there's so much software being created that is based on the solution without understanding the problem first. And whether or not you actually needed that particular solution is really hard to tell. What always reminds me that, I don't know, like almost 20 years ago, probably by now, some of my friends was working as a consultant for SAP, or not directly SAP, but some of the usual companies that um, introduce SAP software into companies. And um, she said that um, whenever they have a new client, they send a bunch of consultants to that particular client. And the only thing they do is stand next to the people working and write down what the people do. Okay. That's interesting. And I was really like, yeah, surprised to hear this kind of approach. And she told me, and I keep telling this every time again, like when trying to describe why those processes of defining what kind of software you should write is so broken is that you're incapable of telling what you're doing. Okay. 
if you have a driver's license and I would ask you to describe how you drive a car, if I would try to copy that and then drive a car, I would not even get started. Because most people say, yeah, well, I entered the car, start the engine and drive, which sounds logical. Everybody is nodding. Yeah, that's how you drive a car, right? Yeah. But um, you don't have any keys. The, you didn't open a door and you didn't buckle up. And how, how do you start the engine? By pressing a button, turning it. Right? You didn't describe half of what <laughs> you're actually doing. And everybody was nodding. Yeah, like that's the process, of course. Yeah. But that's just plain bullshit. It's not the process. It's a high-level overview, but there's literally no chance to copy that and make it a working process if you would write software for that. True. True, true. Fair point. So the only way of understanding what you're actually doing is by observing what you're doing. Okay. Then whenever you don't understand some certain action, like ask, okay, why did you just do this? I'll, I'll share a, a link um, that I, when I created some courses for Pluralsight, um, the last, I, th I think they're called like an author manager or like, yeah, the person you talk to as an author, they're amazing, cannot, cannot rave about her more. Somehow we got onto a similar conversation uh, or topic and she sent me a link to a YouTube channel. I'll, I'll send it over and I'll include it in the, in the show notes for this episode, which, because she used to be, uh, she used to teach little kids. Mm -hmm. and said, how do you communicate to little kids who just don't have anywhere near your level of background knowledge, but you need them to do a task? And said this, this particular YouTube channel did it comically, but quite well, where it's a father and two of his, I think, three kids, and he'll give them a comical challenge, say, I would like you to do this for me. Oh, sorry. No, 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 no. Flip the other way around. Um, they have a, a challenge where he'll say, okay, you now have to write down instructions for me to do something and I will follow them exactly or exactly as best I can. And is let's that, see what results. Is that the peanut butter that's the one. sandwich? Yes. Yeah. yeah, that's, yeah, that's exactly to the point. And for anybody who hasn't heard it, it's, yeah, this very comical thing of the kids go away and they write down, do this, do this, do this. And he follows it as assuming I don't know anything else. And the kids just look at him with this complete look of what are you doing? But why aren't you? And he said, but you didn't say to do that. Or what you've said is I could have done it any which way. So yeah, yep. I'll share that. Yeah, that's a really nice. View. I mean, it's there's like various iterations mm. and um, it's getting really mean at some point because he's deliberately <laughs> trying to do it wrong. But um, yeah, if you don't specify the process, there's literally no way to follow it completely right yeah or you could say well you said this that I, I could do that in a number of ways and many of them could be wrong or could break something but you didn't quite specify enough so it's open then to my interpretation I'm gonna add that yeah he does get a bit mean and was it the sun says like what are you doing you're deliberately trying to ruin this and he just yep. smiles with like well maybe <laughs> But I, I, I like your point, as you said, about looking at what am I trying to solve, not make this for me. Okay, I can make that for you, but then leads to that stereotypical, but this doesn't work, but I may want you ask me to make for you. And then there's that fight of they're a bad company because they implement a bad solution. No, the company, well, the company may or may not have, but it, hopefully it was what the client asked for, but the client didn't necessarily know exactly perhaps 
what they really wanted to solve. Yeah. That sort of that to and fro that so often happens. And that's the same kind of problem with system architecture. Now we are back to on topic, I guess, that understanding what you actually need and how much you need. And there's so many, well, I think it's all like this illities kind of things, right? Like all the soft factors that you consider when creating that are not actual functional requirements. And it's really hard sometimes, of course, to guess how much hardware you would be needing or how many requests you expect to be dealing with and, and things like that. But also like just simple questions like, okay, what kind of availability do you want? And people are like, well, it should be 100%. And well, as soon as you have a little bit of a tech background, you're aware that this is impossible to achieve. I mean, mm -hmm. even the biggest players don't manage, like Microsoft has managed to kill teams for a couple of hours by just breaking things. And I guess they are big enough to know better, but apparently they didn't. Facebook managed to kick themselves out of their own buildings because they broke something. Mm. Um, so it's impossible even for the biggest players. But let's consider getting closer to that. Like what is the 100% or close to 100% that we want? And people are like, yeah, then take the next best thing. But this also is, again, trying to come up with a solution without actually understanding the problem. So why do you want to have a high availability? Because you don't want to face the consequences when people are annoyed that your service is maybe not available. Okay, but what's your software or your company providing? Is that, for example, an in-house software that runs internally and you are just based in one single country? Well, chances are nobody is working 24-7. So 100% availability is just useless because 90% of the day, um, nobody's using it. If it's, for example, time tracking system, then maybe it's like in the morning and in the evening when you log in and log out, if you don't have individual minutes or processes to be mm -hmm. registered. So why would you need 100% availability, assuming it would be achievable? It's just waste. Mm. So if you couldn't, do that? How could you recover in case of an error? So assuming you could not um, log out in the evening, well, then you either book it the next day. So might be annoying for the people, but not necessarily a major problem. So you always have to see what's the impact of a situation. You have to understand the actual problem. And if you realize, okay, maybe having a system that can be down for hours is not necessarily a problem, then you can scale completely differently and you need different solutions, different approaches to things. And that also applies to um, container setups, right? If I would want to update things without downtime, which for a website is usually preferred, um, then I need a different setup with like load balancers and stuff in between to actually route things while I'm creating spawning new services and then starting to switch them over so the site isn't down. Mm -hmm. But if I'm updating a single container and then I'm down for two minutes because the system is restarting the services and maybe updating some database things, if that's not a problem, that's a way simpler solution and mm -hmm. it's easier to maintain and run. But you have to understand the consequences and the problems in place. And it's so amazing how much effort is being generated. Like, yeah, we have to do this in the cloud because there it's more available. No, it's not. It's the same problem, just not your hardware. Yeah, it's very cool. 
Or is a lot of it someone saying we have to do it because you hear it so much? So there's like a, a, a preconception that that's just what you do. Yeah. Without exactly. actually thinking about, well, actually, is that applicable to us and budget and so forth? Yeah. Also, budget is a very nice point. Like a friend of mine used to work for booking.com, like the hotel reservation mm. platform. And um, he told me like, I don't know, half a year ago or so that they had some change in management or maybe, I don't know when that was, but he told me at least half a year ago, roughly. Mm. And that new management was like, yeah, we have to move everything to the cloud because reasons. And they calculated and showed them that they would actually spend one extra zero in the month on running things just because the cloud on their scale is ridiculously expensive without actually gaining anything because they would still have to run the same kind of processes to maintain all the services. They still have to run all the um, updating scripts, whatnot. And they probably would even need more hardware because cloud is actually slower if on that scale than bare metal, which for databases is not necessarily surprising, I guess. So yeah, it just doesn't make any logical sense. Which seems to make a nice segue into marketing as well of preconceptions and perceptions of what's required versus well, what actually is Yeah, and going I, against trends. What I really like is um, taking the both, uh, the best of both worlds in a way. Like I still remember, like, I don't So also quite some years ago when um, somebody, um, that we also did podcasts with actually like back in the days. And I think they just started doing it again. Um, he was working for um, Gronandia, like the German publisher. Mm. And um, they are responsible among other things for like Stern, like the German magazine and Stern TV. And you can imagine that this is a general magazine kind of site where it's just like there's an estimated average traffic during the day. And then there's StanTV and suddenly traffic spikes like this. And then StanTV is over and off. So traffic, 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 explosion, no traffic. So how do you scale that? And they were like, okay, during StanTV, the site needs to be up because that's important for various reasons. Like many people coming and advertising income and whatnot. Um, but for like literally 90% of the time, the systems are idle. If you scale to that proportion to manage the TV live part. So they literally created a system that exported the full website into a kind of static environment, deployed that into a cloud infrastructure that scaled by auto scale and basically changed the routing to the cloud. And when Stand TV was over, they switched off the cloud part and went back to their own site. Ah, that's interesting. So you can't scale by yourself to this. Basically, uh, I mean, having a TV show running is basically a requested denial of service, right? So many people are likely going to use the site, particularly if you advertise certain links and URLs on on on, on the show. So, yeah. And if you have an environment that is based on containers, that's easy to transport, right? I mean, again, in that case, they didn't do that because Podman didn't exist back then. But conceptually, given that you can um, 
export a pod setup to a Kubernetes YAML file, you can literally take that and deploy it in Kubernetes and then have it auto scale in that environment. So there's a lot of benefits in having containers, having reusable fragments, but having it in a standard way and not necessarily a proprietary DSL. Okay. Well, that's a nice way to kind of, I guess, sort of wind everything to a close. So at this point is usually sort of what I do is, you know, I could say if there's something that I don't, as you, you were mentioning, right, when we just uh, got talking was you're going to be at Confu, if there's something that you want to sort of say that, yeah, whether it's Confu or something else or a mixture. Well, in case people are listening from Canada or feel like traveling to Canada, Montreal is a uh... Well, in this time of the year, pretty freezing, but otherwise really nice city to visit. Canada in general is nice to visit and the conference is pretty awesome. It started as a small community event and grew to, at least to their own claims, one of the biggest tech conferences in North America. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to be there again. I'm actually speaking about um, containers in, in two ways. Um, one, I already bitched about it, I guess, um, that the container sizes are too big. There's way too much in there. So like one talk is titled, Honey, I Shrunk the Container. <laughs> That's literally because there's so much in there. And just to give a random example, um, I have um, one of my PHP projects is called Five, which is a FAR installation tool to manage tools um, for PHP projects. And um, if you see... Like if I would use like a standard um, Fedora simple image and just install PHP in there with like the environment that I need, like the additional extensions and copy my small file file in there, I have a 490 something um, megabytes container. If I'm using um, a stripped down version of maybe for example, going for um, Alpine as a base, it's already like 80 something. And if you strip it to what you actually need, you're down to um, 15 megabytes compressed. Just to give you an idea of how big containers are and how uselessly big they are in, in many cases. If you take the standard Nginx container that you can download, the official Nginx container, that's um, I think also like 70 something megabytes compressed, 140 something uncompressed. If you extract the things that you actually need to run Nginx, you're down to eight megabytes. And it's not just for making the size smaller, right? It's about all the crap that you don't need not having to be in there. You don't need package management. You don't need curl. You don't need wget. You don't need a complex shell. You don't need compilers and all that, right? It's yeah, a, supposed to be a running container and not your setup environment. Yeah, true. Because like they say in the crime movies, everything you say can be used against you. And every tool that you have available in a container can be used against you. If it's not in there, they can't use it. So that's one of the talks. Now I gave some of it away, but I'm gonna show how that actually works and how you do that. And um, the other literally is replacing um, Docker with Podman, introducing on how that works. And I'm still really annoyed that I can't find the link for like this um, overlay extension thing. So I'm just gonna write you an email and then you can edit to the description afterwards. I'll go hunting, but that sounds cool. All right, well, thank you very much for all this. I've made copious notes here in my scrawly green. Well, wow. <laughs> um, I mainly because just it sort of helps me then um, get episodes sort of finished and out quicker than sort of 
listening at the end and scroll, stop, make a note and so forth. Yep. But yeah. uh yeah, no, it's been it's been great. And I hope that I can keep on learning and spend a bit more time with Podman. That would be really nice, I guess. If you have any questions, don't hesitate to ask. I'm I'm necessarily happy um to help where I can and let me know what I can do. I'm not necessarily certain I can answer every question, but since I've been using it for quite a while and yeah, played a lot, maybe I have some bit of a head start knowledge in that regard. And that's a wrap for this episode. You can find more about anything you've heard in today's episode by going to freethegeek.fm. That's freethegeek.fm. If you've enjoyed the episode, I'd love it if you'd give it a rating on your podcast platform of choice. Alternatively, please leave a comment in the episode discussion. I'd love to know what you think, what you thought was good, what could do with a bit more work, etc., etc. Otherwise, I'll see you next time.